hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The first sponsorship on Warden's Watch is Trail Runner Wireless Internet, available in Coas County and Washington County, Maine. High-speed internet for rural areas. And they're the company I work for other than podcasting. So, and I, I thank you for their support. Uh, this is high-speed internet r- rural areas, making my podcast happen and making businesses happen in remote places, as well as bringing technology to you folks when you live out in the country. Please go to mytrailrunner.com and like the page on Facebook as well. That would help them a lot and help me to continue Warden's Watch. Guidefitter.com. Guidefitter, bridging you to the outdoors while providing a quality platform for guides and outfitters for you to select from. Guidefitter is the best place to get discounts on gear if you're an outdoor professional. As a game warden, I'm a member of the Outdoor Government Program, which has over 80 quality brands to get discounts from. It's free to join. Yes, free to join. And all you need to do is prove that you're an active outdoor government employee. There are all kinds of products available. Apparel, boots, archery equipment, optics, backpacks, cameras, watches, ammo, anything, you name it. And while you're there, check out the articles, information, and stories that you'll be inspired from. So before you head out to work in the outdoors or start your next outdoor adventure, check out GuideFitter.com and get discounts on your everyday or every so often outdoor equipment. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders for GuideFitter. RodGeeks.com. RodGeeks is a company that designs and builds fishing rods. They are a partner with St. Croix Rods and have been building fishing rods since 2008. They use St. Croix's expertise in all their rod designs so you can trust the rods. The RG42 is a one-piece travel rod. performs like a much longer rod but is compact enough to keep anywhere so you can fish anytime. They offer it as a kit that includes rod, reel, fishing line, case, pliers, and a tackle tray. Put your favorite baits in the tray and you have everything you need to go fishing. It may look unconventional, but this rod really works. Pick up an RG42 kit today and you won't regret it. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, 
wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Welcome to Episode 6. I'm your host, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and we are back with Warden's Watch. Episode 6, it seems to be going fairly good, fairly quick. I'm trying to mix it up as I go, so you're not hearing all from New Hampshire Game Wardens, because that's my roots. certainly want you to hear from those wardens, because their experiences are awesome, and currently uh, you see them on TV, so... To, to get that more of that background, to get that more of that understanding, to get to know the individuals a little bit more, I think is just an awesome experience for our listeners. So to get those game warden stories and then attach them to watching them on live television is just a, an incredible experience, I think. So I think uh, the listeners, the watchers want more. Hoping I am giving more. Episode 6 is going to focus on in Maine. Maine, what an awesome place to be a game warden. What an awesome place to vacation. Woods, waterways, mountains, uh, coastline. They don't call it vacation land for nothing. So it's just an incredible place, and what an incredible place to be a game warden. If I had a second choice, it would be Maine. And they are very similar to New Hampshire. We share probably the most similarities out of every agency comparison across the nation. And we're very close. We work together. We... uh, feed off of each other. When we started our airboat team up again, the first thing I did was reach out to the main warden services because they had a lot of experiences with airboats. So they have been a great help to New Hampshire, and I think vice versa, we've supported each other. It's great that they support me in this endeavor because, you know, all I want to do is promote uh, conservation law enforcement nationwide, internationally. So um, this, this interview is Norm Lewis, main game warden. And you're going to hear when I start this podcast off, when I think main game warden, Norm's the first one that pops into my head. Well-spoken, big, burly, easygoing, a woods-wise man. When, when you think of uh, the game warden that's going to, going to find you in the woods, it's, it's Norm. So he's quiet, he's deliberate, uh, and he's got a soft touch to him, unless you get him mad, and uh, he can back it up. So photo you're going to see on this episode is me and Norm standing uh, in front of a helicopter from a search and rescue in the Mahusics. You can see Norm's size. He's, he's quite a big guy. You know, just uh, just you're going to experience uh, some of the things he did through his career. It's awesome. So I hope you enjoy it. We're going to talk about, you know, a, a moose case. We're going to do some search and rescues together through this one. And I just enjoy so much with the interaction of the guys that I know, the guys that we actually have stories together. I'm going to have a tough time when I don't have stories with a guy. I'm going to have to be pulling them out and and comparing my experiences with their experiences, I think, because it's so nice to have these experiences together that we can talk about the the times that we have worked together, the times we have rescued people and the Mahusiks and... uh, that's special for me, and it's special for me that Norm actually did this podcast with me. So thank you, Norm. The other thank you I have to go out is Auto North in Gorm, New Hampshire. They're a used car auto dealership, top-of-the-notch people. The hardest part about podcasting is finding a place when I meet with these guys. I like the one-on-one. I like the face-to-face. I have yet to do a over-the-phone one, although that's going to have to come just because of economics. But I love enjoying the interaction, and I'm a trained 
investigator interviewer by nature. So I like to read body language. I like to move on when I think I need to move on. I like to dig a little more when I dig a little more. It's going to be very tough for me to break from this face-to-face. And Norm called me up on a, on a whim and uh, said, uh, well, we actually had, we had a plan on going turkey hunting and then doing an interview with him after that. But uh, he ended up in the ER with a, a little uh, issue with his knee that got three times the size. So that didn't happen, unfortunately. But he had to go make some errands, so he called me up and told me he was going to be close by. I'm thinking to myself, where can I do this interview? So I called my friends at Auto North and said, hey, can I use an office? And they were very accommodating, and thank you very much. So we, we did this uh, podcast in, in an office at Auto North, which worked out awesome. I appreciate that, and I appreciate Norm's time to take it out and sharing his life experiences as a game warden with you guys because uh, that's why you're listening, I hope. Uh, We're going to mix it up every month. I'm going to try to bring something different in. We're going to do a New Hampshire warden, and then we're going to do something different, whether it's a a warden from a different state, or it might be I got Grant Hacking, world-renowned wildlife artist. We did a podcast together. I found that one interesting, so I'm hoping you're going to find that interesting. And find out how much wildlife art is tied into wildlife and tied into law enforcement as well. So that's going to be an exciting episode. But here's episode six. I I hope you enjoy stories that Norm gives, the experiences, the cases, the detail that Norm gives. He's a a great speaker, and uh, he had some great investigations he shared with us. So, and some of them a little bit funny. Thanks a lot, and continue listening, and please share with your friends. Podcasting, the more downloads you get, if you guys subscribe and downloads, it just it helps me. It helps me if you like my Facebook page. So if you could help me out that way, I would appreciate it. So And listen to my sponsors. Those guys are awesome. I have quality sponsorship, and that's awesome, and I want to continue with that. So enjoy this episode six, Norm Lewis, Maine Game Warden. When I think of the main game warden, you're what I think of, Norm. Uh, it forever will be in my head. Big, burly, main game warden. Uh, soft touch and mean as hell when you need to be. <laughs> it works. <laughs> no, it certainly worked for you. So, and I want to, we're going to go back into Norm's uh, past, but I want to start off with kind of towards the end of your career. Uh, we got involved in a serious moose case that was. Uh, Started off with uh, you taking a run, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah. Let me tell me about that one. <clears throat> well, October, Maine has its its moose hunt. It's usually the second week in October. And when I later in my career, when I had a canine, I would go to a remote warden camp in Parmachini, Maine, and stay That's there. That's just over the border from yeah, New Hampshire, right? Really. Along, yeah. yeah. It's hard actually to get there without going through New Hampshire if you come and, from and the And Conservation West. Officer Eric Fluett found that out because he had a hard time getting there and yes. finding it. <laughs> yes, he came up to spend the night and, and ride with me and learn some of the country on the other side of the line from where he works. So normally what I would do is go up the first three to four days of the moose season with my canine and help those guys. The moose hunt in the beginning had a, had a lot of issues, but as the moose hunt became more popular and it wasn't just a new thing anymore, the actual violations um, dwindled. And mm-hmm. mostly I like to think it was because we worked it pretty hard and let everybody know we were serious about following the rules. People got pretty used to that. Plus the penalties for doing it wrong are generally <laughs> fairly significant. It costs you so a lot of money. When they sure. see you a lot and yeah. um, know that you're interested. And it was also a good chance to have positive interaction with the sportsmen and, and yeah. you know share some information with them so they could get a moose. And that visibility and, is it, it means a lot, too. Yes. When people see yeah. you. Good that, visibility. Yeah. Um, both by keeping them honest, but also you give them a hand. And many times we come across somebody that didn't realize how much work it was when you shoot a moose. And 
Huh. You give them some advice, or you can actually give them physical help, and yeah, and they really appreciate it. Remember it. I helped two guys one time find a moose, and then I got worried about them because they were older guys. So I went back, and they actually had shot a moose, and I helped them get it out and load it. And one of the guys came to me. I was making a pot of coffee on the tailgate of my truck for him, and one of the guys came to me and said, "You know," he says, "We don't like game ones. Um, <laughs> usually, we don't have anything, but." trouble when we see game ones but this has been really different and i just you know we want to say thanks and we got to rethink our position on game ones yeah so that was you know that's what you go for a- absolutely yeah and then sometimes we can leave a bad taste in people's mouth we're just yeah. like normal the know? more the more people you can um recruit and get on the right side of the law and and absolutely. have a good opinion of you is way more effective than the people that you catch and, and let the court systems deal with. Um, and we have bad days, too. People oh. got to remember that, you know? I mean, and sometimes you might catch a game warden on a bad day. <laughs> yeah, on a bad day, or you just might want to test the waters, and then you don't like what happens when you test the waters. <laughs> <clears throat> no doubt. So you're up in Parmachini. Yeah, so up in Parmachini, and the first day of the moose hunt was a holiday, so um, what one of my lieutenants came over and rode with me. And it was a very warm day. It wasn't the greatest day to go moose hunting. And he spent the day with me. And his advice to me when he left was, you know, you've already worked a full day. I'd kind of appreciate it if you just took the rest of the day off. It's hot. And, you know, do something for yourself and go get him tomorrow. So I said, yeah, all right. I went back to the camp. I had two dogs at the time. One was my working canine and one was just a dog I was thinking about bringing into work later on. And I decided I'd go for a run, but not right at the camp. I fed my dogs, loaded them in my truck, and drove up. I wanted to run along the shore of the lake because it was flatter. I didn't have to run, <laughs> so, many, me there. run so many hills. Yeah. So <laughs> I left the dogs in the truck, and I was just just getting dark. And I left, and I, I remember it was just dark enough when I when I came around the corner. There's a field there, and I, you know, I jumped a deer in the field. And the best part, you know, the only reason you could really tell it was a deer was because of the white back end and the tail. Mm-hmm. You could see it the way it was running. You said, oh, shoot, that's a deer. So I was getting pretty dusky, but I could see the road. I had a headlamp. I wasn't using it yet, but I could still see all right. Now your eyes adjust anyway. So mm-hmm. I'm running, and at the time I wasn't running a lot, so I wasn't in great shape, but I was trying to stay in shape because using the dog requires – you know, especially when you get older, like I was at the time. Yeah, the dog drags you on a track. That's that's yeah, a workout. You, I, you know, in order to do things I used to do just for the heck of it, I now had to work out and train so I I could do it and keep up and and not be an embarrassment to everybody else. So I'm running along and I get just over a mile from my truck and I hear a gunshot and I had just heard some uh, Canadian geese and the gunshot was across the the lake from me and I thought, geez, I wonder if somebody shot one of those geese. And then there was another gunshot, and I was able to pinpoint the location better after the second shot. And it was further up onto the side of the mountain than right on the shore of the lake. And I thought, well, I, I'm pretty sure I know exactly where that came from or pretty close to it. I guess I better get back to my truck and go find out what's going on because it's dark. Yeah. So I ran as fast as I could back to my truck, which isn't very fast. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm wearing, wearing a T-shirt and shorts because I'm out running. You're not wearing those shorts like from the 70s or anything? No, no, no. Okay. I got a pair of halfway decent running shorts <laughs> off, but I don't have the best looking white legs in the world, <laughs> so I don't have a lot of time to work on my tan. <laughs> Anyways, I jump in the truck, my uniform's back at camp, and I'm thinking, I'm not wasting you that. You don't have time. I'm not wasting that time. I'm just going to go find out what's going on. And I should probably add that I was very familiar with the group that I suspected that this was going to be. I had dealt with them before. I wasn't terribly nervous about them 
because I just had dealt with them for so many yep. different years. You had a relationship, and, yeah, good or bad. And they, they weren't real good people for following the rules. So I always try to make a point when I was up there working to make sure they knew I was there to give them a little more additive incentive to behave. Right. And I had done that earlier in the day. I mm-hmm. met some of their party and said, hey, make sure you tell everybody at camp that I'm around. I'll be seeing everybody. And, oh, yeah, we will. So I still suspected it might be that group because where the shots were, it wasn't terribly far from their camp, and there's not a lot of camps in this in this particular country. So I race around the corner with my truck, and I – as soon as I get around the corner of the lake, just because I may or may not have pinpointed the, where the shots came from, I started looking for shell casing in the road or tire tracks where somebody sped off or came to a quick halt. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I, I left the part out. As I was running back to my truck, when I got down by the lake where I could look across, I could look up and see headlights on the side of the mountain where a vehicle was stopped with its with its light shining. Yeah. And I thought to myself, gee, I, I know right where that is. It's just below a place that they call the phone booth. And I said, well, you know, that's right where I suspected. I, I thought the shots had come from the vicinity of the phone booth, and this was just below it. So I figured, well, the shots and that, those headlights are related. But given that, I was still looking all the way up there to make sure I didn't miss anything, and I wasn't mm-hmm. um, going to the wrong place. So I had to make two turns, and then I climbed up, and sure enough, when I get up to where I had saw the headlights, there was now, I want to say, four vehicles there. And between 10 and a dozen people, it was hard to tell because it was dark. So you were like a mile away, or how far do you think you were when uh, you heard the shot? Probably a mile or a little under, yeah. um, because it was across the lake. Gotcha. But road-wise, it was... Yeah, but as the crew crow flies, as they say. Six, eight miles. Yeah. Because no, I had to go all the way up around the end of the lake and then mm-hmm. back down. And, th- and that time of night, it's so, so still, and yeah. th- those gunshots oh, yeah. just resonate. Yeah. I think the actual end of shooting time that night was... Um, like 6.20 or 6, yeah, I don't say it's quarter after or 20 minutes after 6. And when mm-hmm. I heard the shots, it was like 5 minutes to 7. Yeah, so, so significant. Yeah, yeah. and you got to understand. It wasn't just on the edge. No, it the was end of, well the end of shooting night. time is actual half hour after sunset. Right. So at this point, we're a full hour after sunset, so it's dark. Mm-hmm. So they were using headlights to see what they were doing, so yeah. admittedly it was dark. So I get there, and the place is just crawling with people, and I'm – vastly outnumbered which i was surprised that there was actually four vehicles and like i say 10 or a dozen people there it was hard to tell because they were in and out of the shadows mm-hmm. nobody really wanted to talk to me yeah I'm but when sure. i first pulled up with my truck i had my headlights shining on them they had no no idea who i was mm-hmm. so i thought gee there's this many guys am i gonna put my gun belt on over my shorts and my, with my t-shirt i said no that says sissy, you know. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to walk out there with this T-shirt and shorts on like I own the place and find mm-hmm. out what's going on. Yeah. And I, like I said, I was known to several of them. So it wouldn't be any, you know, they wouldn't have any hard time knowing who I was. So I got out. The first couple of guys I met didn't know who I was. So I asked them where the ringleader was. And I'm going to leave names out of this. Yeah. And they said, oh, he's up at the front of the vehicle there running the winch. So I came around the front of the vehicle and I said, hey, how you doing? He's good. I said, you know who I am, right? Yep. I said, well, I need to talk to you back at my truck. Okay. Well, usually when people just random, you know, just go along and agree, you kind of know that you're on the right track. Yep. Because if that had been me and I was in the middle of trying to get a moose out, I'd be like, yeah, what's this about? Or, right. Yeah, I'll be with you in a minute or whatever. Yeah. But no, no, he come with me. Yeah. So can't, can't you just talk to me here? <laughs> yeah. So we walked back to my truck. I said, hey, look, um, what's the deal? I said, those uh, shots were kind of late. And he says, no, they were at. We shot at 6.17, which is, gives him just a few minutes and under the actual legal shooting time. I said, right. 
uh, no. And he, and he already had an answer, too. That, yeah. That's the other and thing. I said, no, it's <laughs> not. It was 650, whatever it was, 655. And he said, no, 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 no. It was closer to 615. And I said, I, I don't think so, because I heard him. He's like, oh, really? I said, yeah, you know where I'm staying. You know I'm in town. You know where the camp is. Well, I wasn't at the camp. I was up by the lake. You know, I heard the shots, and I want to know what the heck happened. Nothing. He says, we were coming back to camp, and there was a moose in the road. My son has a moose permit, and uh, he shot it. I said, yeah, 655. And they were coming back from the moose hunt. Yes, they were done hunting. They were done hunting. So it's kind of like, you know, first of all, stop and think. You hunt till the last minute while you're hunting. I do. Yeah. You know, you know, I don't get drive, my truck to go back to right, camp until it's done hunting time. Right, you camp after the end of time. You know, hunting, they weren't hunting their way back to camp. Mm-hmm. They were on their way back to camp after finishing the hunting day. Yep. And as the investigation turned out, that's exactly you know what was going on. So I said, well, where, where's your boy that shot the moose? He's over there with the moose. And so I went over and I said, I need to talk to you. Once again, no why, no in a minute, no nothing, just yep. So he follows me over. And I said, just so you're the one that shot the moose. Yep. I said, well, we got a problem. He said, what's that? I said, you shot it way after the end of shooting time. I said, no, I didn't. So we go through the back and the forth. Yeah, you did, you did. And finally, I say to him, I said, look, this is night hunting. It's, you know, it's a pretty serious violation. All I'm interested in the person who is responsible. You know, they got, you have 12 people here involved right now that are, part, right. that are accessory after the fact. Everyone can be you, charged. Yeah, do you want me to charge everyone here, or are you going to be a man and just step up and mm-hmm. tell me the truth of what happened, and we'll see what we can figure out for the best outcome? He said, no, I'm not interested in that. I said, look, your, your dad's getting on in years. He's had his ups and downs and his bumps and his brushes with the a, with a law before. He doesn't need this because this is a pretty serious charge. You, you're really going to make me write your dad a ticket for this because he's part of this? rather than tell me the truth. And he said, instead of saying outright that, you know, what he had told me was the truth or that they hadn't done anything wrong, he looks at me and he says, no, I think I'll stick to my story. Right. Which there, once mm. again, when you've been in law enforcement, it's like, okay, it's, it's a story. It's those little things that you truth. pick up on. Yeah, it's not the truth. It's a story, and you don't want right. to deviate from it, and it's close mm-hmm. enough to your father's so you guys think you're all set. Yeah. So I didn't have cell service there, but as luck would have it, they were – just down the road from what they call the phone booth. And it's called the <laughs> phone booth because you have cell signal there. So I rode up there and I quickly called the lieutenant and told him what was going on. He said, eh, there's how many of them? Mm-hmm. You know, and you? And you know where the camp is? Yeah. And they're not going to get out of there. You know, they're not going to be gone tonight? No. He says, yeah, why don't you um, let it go for now and get some help and investigate further in the morning. But I'm really not comfortable that far back with you dealing with them one-on-one or one on 10 or whatever one on it was. 10, yeah. So I was not real happy with that. I kind of wanted some help that night, but he's the boss. So yeah. I went back to camp. Well, when I got back to camp after some extended tour around the country, Eric showed up, <laughs> which was good. Yeah. So we got some help from the local guys the next day. Actually, Border Patrol showed up. Uh, one of the other guys with a canine that was working on fire, a fellow that had the area showed up. And I had Eric with me. So we went back and investigated the scene. And then it was pretty straightforward at the, at the scene. It pretty well looked like the moose had been in the road, got off the side of the road, and they shot it um, from the road. And that pretty much looked like that was that. 
And I'll say, Eric is pretty excited about this because he tells me about this later. I mean, he lands in our district after coming from the seacoast. His first night, he gets his first night hunter, you know, and then he gets involved in this moose case. He's on cloud nine. He thinks he landed in the best spot to be a game warden in the world. Well, he's close. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's probably not far away. So, right. But, yeah, he, he's all fired up and excited. So, so that's, make, to make a long story short, when I'm going over that morning back to the kill site, I happen to run into some guys with a flat tire. And it, at first, I thought they were just parked aside the road because they were hauling, hauling wood on that road, and I didn't want them to get run over by a log truck, so I was going to tell the guys to move their vehicles. And then I found out they had a flat tire, and I got talking to them, and they were from a camp right there, and they were actually moose hunting as well. So I get talking to them about the flat tire, making sure they're all set, and one of the guys says, did you hear those shots last night? Were you around? And I said, right. yeah. And I said, you mean those shots that were like, Seven uh, six fifty five, and the guy goes, "Yeah, six fifty three. I looked at my watch. I said, "What a statement!" Really? He goes, "Yeah." He says, "I just came out of the camp on my way to the woodshed, and I uh, heard the shots." I said, "Well, where'd they come from?" He goes, "Well, right up the road. You were, you were going to go up there a minute ago. This is right up there." And I said, "Oh, okay." And I said, "And you checked your watch?" He goes, "Yeah, because I was mad. It was dark. I was using a flashlight to go to the woodshed." And I said, "Okay, well, I'd like to, you know, like get a written statement from you later about that." So I started to tell him a story and he's like well we saw those guys earlier where they were hunting mm. i said oh where was that and as it turned out they were not they didn't see him at 615 in that location they saw him at like 605 and we we mapped it out later if they had left immediately after these guys saw him and drove like 45 or 50 miles an hour they could have made it to where they shot by the time they said they did but there were no high-speed corner tracks. There were no spin-outs. There was nothing to indicate that and anyone driving that speeds on a woods road drove that fast. Hurt. And there yeah. was—they didn't tell me that they, you know, were in a hurry to get back to camp or anything. They were just on their way back to camp. So that, mm -hmm. you know, that was good um, circumstantial evidence that they couldn't have shot when they said they did because they weren't there. Right. So that was an, another good piece of the case. Yeah, that's an excellent piece of evidence. So we start. We start putting things together, and uh, we decide finally we got enough to go up to the camp and talk to them. So we go to the camp and, and talk to him. Well, the shooter's gone. And they had taken the moose and to a meat cutter in New Hampshire, and the shooter is bailed. So all I have is the old-timer to deal with. When we get to the camp, there are several people in camp, and some of them are very prominent individuals from the state of Maine, which is really tough because the guy that owns the camp and is kind of the ringleader is a very well-off businessman. And uh, he has well-off friends, and mm -hmm. all of his. Some of his friends aren't exactly aware of exactly who he is when he gets in the woods. He's not a bad person. He's just not the greatest person when he gets in the woods, and he's not terribly concerned with the rules. Mm-hmm. Understandable. Kind of an end justifies well, a few people like that. The end justifies the means, kind of guy. Right. And, anyways, I got him off the side, and we first got there. There was a bunch of guys there. We found uh, plumage from a spruce grouse in the dooryard where somebody had shot a spruce grouse and breasted it. Nobody could remember that. Right, of and course. those are like New Hampshire. They're protected. Illegal, yeah, yeah, illegal to take. They're really easy to kill, and that's why they're protected. Yeah. So we um, get the idea of everybody in camp. One of the first things the Border Patrol guy asked, is anybody from Canada? Nope. Well, they didn't realize the follow-up question, but he gave us some idea. Oh, there's a guy from Quebec. And then <laughs> the... the um, did he not understand the first question? <laughs> that's what the, that's what Border Patrol said. What what part of are you from Canada? Do you did you not understand? Mm -hmm. So obviously they didn't expect us to ask for ID, and they were just 
You know, they weren't going to cooperate with about anything. Mm-hmm. Turns out there was no big deal about this guy being um, from Quebec, other than he had a resident hunting license from the from the state of Maine, rather than a, I mean a a regular non-resident license, rather than an alien license. Uh-huh. And we pursued that, and come to come to find out, he bought that license at an agent in New Hampshire, and it was actually the agent's fault, not his. He gave him all his ID, and. His address on the license was Quebec. It wasn't right. like he gave a fake address to be a non-resident. So it wasn't his fault, although mm-hmm. it was a violation, which is kind of interesting, him being from Canada, lying about it, and then being in violation, although it was inadvertent. Mm. And the good thing about it was we could have charged him, but we didn't. You right. know, it, it, Just to show Took that high we're not out to get these people. We just no. we just want to encourage them to follow the rules. And, and it's good to see that you've the progression of that. You yeah. know, one thing, you know, lying and leads to this, leads to that. Exactly. The next thing, the next thing, the next thing to right. find out there is a problem. Yeah. So, uh, so I got the older guy off to the side and found out that a bunch of people that were there the night before because of me showing up, they were all planned on staying and bird hunting, but now they kind of evacuated. They left. Yeah, they didn't like the energy at camp, so they took off. And I, I started to uh, interview the older guy, and he wasn't going to change his story. And we went round and round. He told me he's sick and tired of being harassed, and I, I spelled it out for him. I said, I don't know why you think you're being harassed. I come here. I work here. You've seen me year after year that I do this. I check in with you, let you know I'm in the area, and then it's up to you as to what you do. It's not harassment. I don't check you every, you know, every time you stop your truck, I'm not there to look at you. Right. You know, I come across you as I come across you, but I always make sure that you know I'm here. Mm -hmm. Puts the ball in your court. Right. And I said, it's kind of insulting that knowing that I was here, that you guys would do this, you know, so close to where you know I'm staying. I mean, Mm -hmm. and he didn't have much of a response to that. So we went around and around and around. Finally, he got very frustrated, and he said, I, I'm not sure I understand what the big deal is. I said, well, the big deal is shot him. He said, you know us pretty well. He said, um, it's the first day of the season. We have one moose permit. He said, well, would, would we be likely to kill a moose by Saturday? I said, you guys, you know, yeah, you know the country. Much time as you spend at it, mm-hmm. you could kill a moose by Saturday. And he said, and we're only entitled to one, and all we killed was one. So what's the difference, whether we shot it Saturday during the day or last night? We only took one. There'd be one missing in the end anyway. So it's just funny little, how that whole a, thought process it's a, goes. It's a little isn't it? foggy on when we got the one, right? But we only got one. Mm-hmm. We didn't take too many. You know, all we did was speed things up. But he still wouldn't actually admit to the crime. He just wanted to know what the big deal was because, in his mind. They were able. They were entitled to get one. How they did it isn't really that important, as long as mm-hmm. they don't take more than the one. Well, I told him that that really wasn't how I had to operate and how I actually felt about it either. So finally, we just ended it in frustration, and I told him, "Hey, look, you know, despite what you think, it's not personal, but this isn't going away, and we're not." That was that. So talked to different supervisors and. We realized that we had a problem because the moose was now in New Hampshire, no longer in Maine. The shooter was gone, um, which I was afraid I was going to lose this the night before, but I really wasn't capable of handling all of them the night before and dealing with it all the night before alone. And we had lost several witnesses. Mm-hmm. And we did our best while we were at the camp to determine who was in camp. I had gotten some license plates of some vehicles that I saw leaving the area, and um we had an idea roughly who was at camp. We just didn't know the whole cast of characters. Gotcha. So that was came further in the investigation. To make a long story short, we went back to the camp with Eric. Um, I wrote an affidavit 
for a search warrant, which in turn we shared with the New Hampshire folks, and you guys went and got a search warrant. And the next morning we went and seized their moves from the meat cutter. Actually, you guys seized it and then voluntarily gave it to gave us. It to you guys. Yeah. And you guys drove it across the border, and we took it from there. Yeah. So that, that took care of that part of it. And now the part was to track down the other parts of the pieces of the puzzle. Uh, one individual was a very prominent person in the, in the state of Maine, even more <laughs> thought he might have even been more prominent than he really was, but he was very reluctant to even be interviewed. He thought it was insulting that he should have to even be interviewed about it. That was a fun interview because he was personally known to one of my supervisors who sat in on the on the interview, and it was obvious that he wasn't going to tell us what we needed to know. Um, he wasn't going to lie to us, really. He just wasn't going to answer questions. And his biggest problem was that it had already caused great difficulty between him and the camp owner, and they weren't speaking to each other. And they'd been involved in some business deals that went south because of this whole thing. Wow. So that's um, big re- repercussions. Yeah. And he, you know, he felt that he'd already paid enough because he wasn't even, he was in camp when the moose was killed. And I said, well, you know what was said at your camp. You know. And you know, you know they had conversations right. when they went back. Exactly. And uh, you just, Tell me what happened. And basically says, I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. Well, that is the truth. But you also know what was said about what was happened. You also know that the mood in camp immediately changed afterwards. You know, you know. So just tell me what you know. But he he really felt like he needed to, you know, downplay his part the most. But one of the most important things he gave us was the name of two of the guys that were in the vehicle with the father and son when the moose was killed. Mm. One of the guys was from Quebec. And we weren't able, ever able to track him down. <laughs> and when we, we had, in the end, we got enough out of the case that we didn't have to go to Quebec and track this guy down. And, but we've, there was a guy that did some calling and was kind of helping him. He wasn't, pay, being, he wasn't being paid, so he wasn't a guide, but he had come over to camp to enjoy camp life as a favor to this guy, not knowing who the actual camp owner and the moose permit holder were. Hmm. So as luck would have it, another game warden that I know had a personal relationship with this guy. So I couldn't get a hold of him, so I called the other warden and said, hey, set up a meeting with this fellow. we got to interview him. So we did. We went to his house. Dave made it. We need to know what happened. And he obviously knew we were coming. He told us that um, he'd been approached by the family and told to, and they told him to not to say anything, and if there was any trouble, they, they would pay for his lawyer. <laughs> and he was very upfront about that. He was pretty nervous. Yeah. He had dual citizenship citizenship in the United States and Canada. Huh. And if he got himself in trouble in Maine, he his border crossing ability was going to be deeply impacted. Right. And even though he lives and works in Maine, um, his girlfriend lives in Canada, and he goes to Canada when right. he's not working. So he and I've had similar the, cases to that. Over yeah, the, the ability and, the ability not to be able to cross the border because he got into some legal trouble was right. a real heavy thing weighing, weighing on him. Absolutely. And as we explained to him, you know, you were in the vehicle, you were there, you are fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. 
an accessory. Te- technically a participant, so explain to us what happened and tell us your role and who did what, and maybe we can get this figured out. Well, in the beginning, he uh, it was still the same thing, you know. I don't know what time Moose was killed because I didn't look at my watch. I wasn't mm-hmm. wearing one. <clears throat> so we kept going back and forth. And the guy I was with, the game warden I was with, knew him a lot better than I did. So he was able to speak to him more, more frankly. So finally he said, hey, cut the BS. All right, so you don't know what time it was. Was it dark? And he says, oh, hell yeah, it was dark. <laughs> so from there, we broke the ice. We found yeah. out. The circumstances, the moose was actually seen right around the end of shooting time by another member of the hunting, hunting party. party. They called the, those guys via radio and said, hey, there's this bull moose up here. And they got there as quick as they could, which put them after dark. After dark. The guy that was there kept track of the moose. They actually had to turn their lights to find it. And you know, it, was, it was technically, classically, just you know, a 900 moose. 900 moose. But... The problems we had when we got to court later on is nobody could tell you exactly what time it was. My hearing of the shots, the statements from the other guys, the hearing of the shots, it was all circumstantial. And when you have millions of dollars and can afford millions of dollars worth of attorneys, it all goes the way it goes. But mm-hmm. in the end, we, we did charge them with nighting, night hunting the moose. Uh, we kept the moose. They never got the moose. And the people that cooperated that were kind of like hostages, they were innocent people at the scene they were never charged uh-huh. and we never had to go to court once the once all the information was gathered the attorneys worked out a solution where um it cost them a lot of money the, the actual penalties weren't that great but the price tag was pretty big and in the end they sold the camp because they were tired of seeing me that's <laughs> basically what they told me yeah. which is funny because i was only in their part of the world for four days a, four out days of the a year, year. And if you ask the old guy, I'm the reason he sold his camp because... Wow. Yeah. So in the end, I guess there's some poetic justice there, you know. So it's tough when it goes to court. I know I've had less cases. It it actually got to the point where I really liked the old guy. Yeah. He was miserable and hard to deal with and angry, but I could get him to laugh. And we kind of knew we were on different sides of the coin. But, you know, for the most part, we're okay with that, you know. He's going to do his thing, and I'm going to do my thing, which is catch him. Yeah. And he figured he was better at what he does, and I'm better at what, you know. And the reality of the matter is he probably got away with it 364 days a year. And right. The one day that I happened to catch him. And that was the only the second time in probably eight years of working up there that I actually had caught him in any violation or been part of anyone catching him in a violation. Yeah. So if he, if he actually thought about it practically and all the stuff he did get away with, he'd be fine. Yeah, yeah he, he made out ahead of it, yeah, probably. He just, it was more the shot to his reputation. Mm-hmm, no doubt. Um, you know, it's kind of like the things that happen at camp stay at camp, so the rest of the world doesn't know that that's how he gets his animals, and they all think he's a fantastic hunter and a great Absolutely. sportsman, when really he's... You can uh, tell the story of how he shot that moose yeah, on the wall. and, you know, he's really more of a get-things-done kind of guy. Hmm. Oh, and as a side note, I had actually, his son, about five years prior to that, had had a moose permit as well. And they shot a moose, and I showed up within five minutes of him shooting the moose, purely by luck. And they didn't have their paperwork, which is a violation. Uh-huh. And not only did I not charge him for it, I gave him a warning. I stood by and assisted the son when he, when he dressed off the moose. Jeez. And made sure they were all set to get it out. Because yeah. there was only the two of them, and he didn't have much help in the beginning. And they got the nothing rest, to complain about. 
yeah. So to go from that and then, you know. Right. To the full on. It's, it's obvious. Like, I'm not out to get you. Because right. that would have been, a you know, it was a very, you know, very decent violation. But I realized, you know, from what they were saying, everything was going on, that it was most likely just an oversight and mistake. And, and you treated it wasn't it much such. to gain from them doing it on purpose. Yeah. And huh. plus they knew, you know, man, where does he come from? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a story from the towards the end of your career. How'd you get involved with being a game warden? Is that something you wanted to do all your life, or something that came about? Actually, or? I went. I went to school to um, study forestry management in the University of Maine in Orono, and I had known game wardens because I hunted and fished from as early as I could, and um, I was interested in being in the woods and being able to make a living in the woods. And what I learned about forestry is that uh, forestry, no matter where it's practiced, is more about economical forestry. In that. Good decisions that you make in forestry, you don't realize till 40 or 50 years down the road whether you were successful or knew what you were doing because mm-hmm. that's, you know, trees take a while to grow. Yeah. And at the time, the wood industry in the state of Maine was starting to sour, so jobs were a little harder to, to get. So someone said, well, did you ever think about being a game warden? I said, yeah, I have thought about it. I like to hunt and fish a lot. I don't know if I'd be able to do much of it if I was out so that's, you know, kind of weighed on me there. And then I got thinking about it more, and I thought, you know, what a, what a way to live the kind of lifestyle that I want to live, have a job where I want to have a job, plus be able to actually see the effects of your decision-making in a more timely fashion. You know how it is. You don't see everything. You don't change immediately. You don't recognize an immediate change, but you change people's behavior patterns and you can notice it after a few years that hey i'm doing some good here or I'm, or I'm not you know when you find somebody on a search you immediately right now you got payback you know right. you know that you did a good thing and mm-hmm. it's yeah immediate but you know as you work different types of activity as you speak to kids in the school you know a few years down the road you can see that stuff starting to pay off and it's much better than waiting 40 or 50 years to see if the trees grow the way you thought they would so <laughs> i uh it was still in college. I took the test for the Maine Warden Service and uh, had some difficulties the first time around and missed one of my examination times and got washed out of the system. So instead of giving up, I went back a second time. And it took me twice too, Norm, if yeah, that makes you feel better. They, uh, they I didn't miss it. I just failed it. <laughs> I, I, I missed an appointment. I had a crappy truck at the time, and it uh, down. I didn't get where I was supposed to be. I was, that's tough I was there, and there was a bunch of people that wanted to help me out, and, and there was a the guy that was running the show said no. So mm-hmm. I was early for everything the next time around. <laughs> I was waiting for my turn, and had you know I made it through that time. Went to the warden school, and Maine was in some economic issues at the time, so me going through school and getting to work, it was a bumpy finding uh, stations in southern Maine, and I finally worked my way into the western mountains where I wanted to be. So Yeah. Different experiences from, the, you know, the southern Maine to western Maine? Or? It's kind of funny. The northern and the more rural game wardens in the state of Maine hassle the guys that are around the more urban areas. And, uh, you know, if you it's a, it's a little bit of pride if you have a district that doesn't have a McDonald's or a Dunkin' Donuts in it. You kind of feel like you're a real game warden out in the woods. And they kind of make fun of you, you know, the guys that are riding around with six inches of Dunkin' Donuts cups on the passenger side of their truck. And But uh, the one that would, thing about, that would be me. The one thing about the state of Maine is um, there's a ton of fish and game around where there's a lot of people. And if you, like, if you like catching people and you like protecting fish and wildlife, it's a great place to do it because you have the wild, you know, the people in the wildlife come together mm. on a daily basis. You know, it, we need guys up in the woods too, obviously, but the animals outnumber the people. 
people are more comfortable think they're away with more not the people down here they figure they can blend into the crowd and there's more you know there's more going on they'll be able to get away with it different things because it's just busier so yeah it was fun to work in southern maine it's just not where i wanted to live right but the work was great I yeah mean, it was always, always some, busy always something to do always something always somebody to, do. to find i talked to one of the guys that i was close to that was up north and he'd say you know springtime when it was slow he might go a week before he found one vehicle parked where they were fishing and then he would sit on that vehicle all day long to check those two fishermen so he'd check like two fishermen in an entire week many times they would be in violation because they didn't expect anyone to be there. Right. But I might check 200 fishermen in a week, and one out of every one licenses. out of every ten had a problem. You know. Right. So it's it's kind of how you want to live, not really what you want to do. Yeah. Any funny stories that you've accumulated over the years? Yeah, I had a I had a what I consider a funny story. The district attorney, he's getting ready to retire. Assistant district attorney getting ready to retire here in about two months, and it's still his favorite story because of it's just an ironic story. But uh, we were just starting to get uh, wildlife simulators in the state of Maine, and for those who don't know what that is, the deer decoy <laughs> or bird decoy. <laughs> you had me on that one. But, the wildlife uh, simulator. Our court, our court systems <laughs> That's the hologram preferred, one, right? <laughs> preferred us to call them wildlife simulators because it um, projected a better image of. Well, let's put it this way. There's a there's a perception of entrapment when you say deer right. decoy. Right. So if you use the terminology wildlife simulator, simulator. it's easier for some people I to swallow. See that. So anyways, we we're just starting to get into that. And uh, I didn't have one. And I had some uh, non-resident hunters staying at camps that I suspected were hunting all times of the day, not just during the day. And there was a older warden that um, I worked with a lot that was down on the coast and he had come into possession of a wildlife simulator namely a buck deer and he volunteered to come up one night and we check it out these guys have to be in camp the ones I was concerned about so he showed up my supervisor came with me my sergeant so it was the three of us and we got our trucks hidden and we got our little deer out and the guy I was that had the brought the decoy that um, he wasn't crazy about where we put it because it was in a field that uh, didn't have any bar- barriers between the field and the road. And he says, oh, geez, I'm really not comfortable doing that, but we don't have any other choice. So we put it out there. Well, we didn't have it. It was a misty night, a light rain and a mist all the time. And we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road, but as luck would have it, there was one camp way down the end of this field, and it had a street light. <laughs> For whatever reason, it had a aerial light on the pole uh-huh. that shined up the driveway of that camp and a little bit of the road. So about a half hour, 45 minutes after we got set up, uh, the warden from down on the coast got a call from a missing child. And there is few things that will trump everything in our business, but a missing child is one of them. Absolutely. And he said, well, I got to go. And I said, well, that's too bad. We haven't really. He said, no. He says, keep it. Get it back to me tomorrow. But for God's sakes, don't let anything happen to it. So, oh, no, boy. I won't let anything happen. going just with that yeah, statement. I won't let anything happen to it. So... I get back in the truck. I was riding with my supervisor. I get back in his truck, and we're there. And it's raining, and every once in a while, you got to use the windshield wipers to clear the windshield so you can see what's going on. About an hour goes by. Real slow road. I think it was the first vehicle besides ours that even came by. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a full-size, at the time, full-size Chevy Blazer, the K5. And it pulls into the field just where... We thought it was going. And it's amazing. You know what it's like. You work this stuff. Anybody that's listening that's done this work knows. Yeah. Really? The first vehicle <laughs> it comes along and does exactly what you expect? I yeah. Mean, 
it, it happens, but it don't happen very often. So anyways, they pull in, they, they light the deer up, and I'm waiting for them to shoot. And they don't shoot, and they're sitting there and just wondering why they don't shoot. They got the headlights on it, and all of a sudden, the guy just floors the vehicle, and he's headed right across the field. He gets out there in the field because it's raining, it's wet grass, and the deer doesn't run away. And the light comes on as he's about 20, 25 feet away from it that it's not going to run away. He, he figured it out. And he slams the brakes on, and the rig goes into a skid kind of at an angle, <laughs> and the front bumper takes the decoy, and it does some gymnastics down through the field and finally comes to a rest. And this guy just puts it to the floor, and off they go. And we're sitting there with our jaws somewhere down around the floor mat. <laughs> what just happened? And because that's one thing you didn't expect. Yeah, my sergeant's <laughs> like, well, what do we do now? I'm like, chase them. <laughs> so by the time we get out of our field, they were going underneath the streetlight, and you could see it was a uh, two-tone blue Chevy Blazer. And off it went. Well, it's, this is not going to surprise game wardens, but some people won't think of it. I'm on a dirt road, and it's been raining all night, and no one's been by but the suspect vehicle. The only tire tracks up the road are theirs. Track it. So we drive up the road and get about a mile up the road, and they take a right-hand turn. We take a right-hand turn about 400 yards up that road at the suspect camp is a two-tone blue Chevy Blazer parked, and the camp has got another vehicle there, and everything is completely dark. So we drive right by. We turn around. It's a dead-end road, and we start back down the road, and I said to my, my sergeant, I said, Hey, let me out at the camp. And he says, no, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know yet, but I want you to let me out. He says, I don't think I should. And I had a great relationship with, with my sergeant. He, he was my sergeant, and he, had, you know, he was my supervisor, but he also gave me enough rope to hang myself on many occasions, <laughs> and he had, had faith in me. I said, you know, don't worry, I won't do anything stupid, but I want you to let me out. So he slowed down, and I stepped out. I never closed the door. He drove off with the door open, and... No sooner did the sound of his vehicle fade off than the lights came on the camp, and everybody inside that camp was laughing their ass off. And it, the neat thing about the camp mm. was the actual camp wall was about 10 feet off the side of the public road. Camp was built way back when the only traffic they worried about was horse and buggies, so they didn't have any space. So I could stand legally in the road, lean against the pine tree there was on the shoulder of the road and not be on the curtilage of the camp and pretty much hear what everything happened and it was a yeah it was a tire baby basically a tire paper shack with and they never heard the door close they never heard the door close so as soon as the truck goes the laughing dies off one of the guys says okay what happened oh boy (laughs) and and the guy that's telling the story says we were coming back from town and we pulled in the field down there in the put the headlights out and the game wardens had a uh, fake deer in the field and another voice says, fake deer? And the um, guy telling the story says, yeah, fake deer. And the other voice says again, well, what do you mean a fake deer? And the guy says, just like the deer down to L.L. Beans. Well, at the time, when you walked into L.L. Bean in Freeport, there was a life-sized eight-point buck right, right there <laughs> at the entryway and full mile. So... Guy says, "Oh, okay, like the one where you go through the door. Yeah, that like that one. All right, yeah. We'll continue." He said. So he goes, "You know how hard we've been hunting all week." He says, "And nobody's seen a you know seen a buck yet." He goes, "There he is, standing there in the headlights." And he said, um, "I couldn't take it." So I said to 
I can't even remember if he used the name. So he says, I, so I said, let's chase him out of the field, <laughs> son of a gun. So he says, we thought we'd scare him and chase him out of the field. So that right there kind of clued me in that we don't really have a night hunting case here, but still mm-hmm. I wasn't very happy about what happened. Mm-hmm. And I don't want him chasing my deer through a field with a truck at night either. So he says, I took off across the field. He said, and just before I got to it, I realized what it was. And he said, so I slammed the brakes on, but we slid into it and hit it. And he said, and then we just took off. And he said, obviously they, they saw us because, you know, he said, we don't know where they were, but they just, you know, just, just came by. Hmm. And he said, so that, that was enough for me. I said, all right. So I got on my radio. I called my sergeant and said, hey, come back to the camp. So he's coming up the road. He's like, are you going to jump in? I said, oh, no, pull right in the driveway. So he does. He pulls in the driveway, and I go over and open the side door and slam it like I'm getting out of the truck. And then I walk up, and I, oh, in the meantime, just as soon as you could hear his vehicle coming, all the lights went out again. Mm. So I go up, and I pound on the door. Nobody answers it. So I pound on the door harder and say, game warden. And finally, this guy comes to the door, and he's rubbing his eyes, and he's yawning, and he's like, yeah, what's going on? I say, yeah, I, I need to talk to whoever was driving that blazer here about a half hour ago. Geez, sir, he says, nobody, nobody's left this camp tonight. Um, nobody was driving that. And you know how a warm engine is in the cold where you shut it off and you can hear it, it goes ping, ping tick. Yep. You can hear the engine cooling off as we're talking. And I say to the guy, seriously, look at the steam coming off the hood. I mean, mm. it's been out here all night raining. And the hood's warm. The steam coming off the hood. You can hear the thing pinging, the exhaust cooling off. <laughs> and you're going to tell me that nobody's, well, somebody must have stole it. I said, oh, so they stole it and, and brought it back, huh? Well, I must be because nobody's left this camp tonight. I said, all right, well, if you won't tell me who's the driver, who's the owner? He says, well, I am. So I walked over to it, and as luck would have it, under the corner of the little rubber molding on the bumpers, like five or six deer hairs. Hmm. So I said, well, see, the problem is we had our deer run over down in the field by a vehicle matching this description, and this one has deer hair on it. And without batting an eyelash, the guy says, yeah, I hit a deer on my way up to camp. <laughs> so okay so i said uh where route 26 and bryant pond well the funny thing is about route 26 and bryant pond that's where i live yeah so i said oh okay um who'd you report it to he says i didn't i said okay so you don't want to tell me who's driving the truck tonight but you'd like to admit to leaving the scene of an accident and failure to report a accident <laughs> well i said well what it's one or the other either that thing yeah. was out running around tonight and hit my deer which i know is the truth because i saw it <laughs> or you can confess to these other crimes uh he didn't want to talk anymore so he said i got nothing else to say i said okay so he closed the door and i got back in the truck and my sergeant says well now you gave it a try what are we going to do now i said oh we're having that blazer towed <laughs> and he said, we can't, he says, we can't do that. I said, oh, yes, we can. I, I identify that. It's got the hair under the bumper. We can take it. And he says, um, I don't think so. Well, we didn't have cell phones at the time. It was, and that place doesn't have cell phone service anyway. So I said, tell you what, take me up to, I knew a guy that lived up the road. I said, take me up to his house and see if I can use the phone. So we go up, we wake this poor guy up, fairly early it was a good move because his wife made us coffee and gave us apple pie while i I was on the phone so i call the act the on-call da and i start telling the story and i'm still quite fired up over the whole thing i've been lied to i would imagine i've been entrusted i've been entrusted to this wildlife simulator that's now i haven't even really checked to see how bad off that thing is (laughs) 
that but you it's, borrowed. But, it, but it's not it's not in pristine condition anymore. I can tell you that. And uh, I've been lied to, and uh. I'm I'm not a happy camper. So I'm on the phone with the DA, and the DA starts giving me a little bit of a hard time. Well, how do you know it's the same vehicle? I said, lady, it's a it's a dirt road. Nobody been on it for over an hour before these guys came and i followed the tracks back to camp the vehicle at the camp she says well i don't know i said no offense ma'am i said i'm a game warden not a state trooper if i tell you that vehicle that ran over my deer left the tire tracks all the way to the camp that's what happened <laughs> so she started laughing she says all right she goes go ahead and seize it i said thank you very much so i got off the phone i told my sergeant so da's office says we can seize it he says, oh, boy, great. So I call a guy with a record service. Now it's so foggy now you can barely see it. I call a guy with a record service I know that has a garage that can impound a vehicle. And I said, hey, can you come over here and haul a vehicle for me? Absolutely. So we drive back to the camp. We're there, and I bang on the door. The guy comes out. I said, what now? <laughs> I said, well, I just want to let you know that um, we're seizing the blazer as evidence. And uh, if you'd like to give me the keys, it'll make it easier for the Tow truck driver. Wrecker operator, um, if not, whatever. So there was profanity used, and I'm told, like, no problem. So we sat in the driveway, and all of a sudden this guy comes out the door, and he's putting on a pair of boots, and he's headed for the blazer. And I said, hey, where are you going? He says, I'm just going to get my stuff out of the blazer. I said, mm, not anymore. Well, what do you mean? He says, all my clothes are in there, my, <laughs> my stuff's in there. I said, well, that's kind of too bad because that's – that's mine, and until I inventory the vehicle, you're not getting anything back. That displeased them even all the more, and there was another little conference on the porch that didn't go well, and everybody went inside, shut all the lights off, and slammed the door, and that was that. And they never even came out when the ramp truck got there and sucked the blazer up in gear. Oh, boy. <clears throat> with no keys, and off we went. And before I left, I had given them a business card and said, Hey, guys, when you want to, know, when you want to find out how to get your truck back or where it is or whatever, call me. And we left. So that was it for the night. The blazer went in, locked up. We went home. So the next morning, I um, called Augusta. In Maine, we have a process. I don't know if other states have it or not. Where you can, it's called a libel. Now, we have a law that allows us to seize any equipment or used in fish and wildlife violations. Yep, we have the same. It's a civil court process. Violations. Yeah, it's, a, it's not automatic, no. but it's a civil process where you go before a judge. And you spell out why the items should be seized. And you're taking make, everything in that truck, are you? All the hunting gear and everything? Anything that would be possibly involved in, <laughs> in the crime. And that one, where they, where they didn't shoot or anything, you'd, you'd end up returning everything but the vehicle. The vehicle was the instrumentality of right. the crime, so that's what you're going to be taking. Yeah. So I, I needed permission from a supervisor to do it. I just couldn't start the process on my own. So I call up and I get the major, who I knew real well at the time. I said, hey, this is what happened, and I want to start a libel. He's like, boy, you say it's brand new? I said, yeah, it looks brand new. He says, well, we don't have a lot of luck in libeling brand new vehicles because there's usually a loan holder, mm -hmm. and judges aren't interested in punishing an innocent third party, i.e. the loan holder. Yes. And the loan holder comes, and they show up, and they've usually got more at risk than the violator, and it doesn't go well. And he said, it's, you know, we don't want to punish people that don't. No. So he said, I, I don't think we should do it. I said, okay, well, not, not what I wanted to hear, but I, I accept it and whatever. I said, the last thing I said to him, I said, you know, I said, brand new and nice like it is. I said, it would make an awesome major's vehicle. 
And he laughed, and I hung up the phone. So I was waiting for my sergeant to pick me up at the house so we could go inventory it. And, and I hope, we were still planned on holding it for evidence. We are going to try to do some forensics, see if we could figure out who was hold, you know, whose fingerprints were on the steering wheel, something. Yep. And uh, we didn't know what we'd find in the vehicle as well. So all hope was not lost at that point. Well, before my sergeant could get there, the phone rang again. It was the major. He says, tell you what, I could use a new ride. He goes, go ahead, start the paperwork. <laughs> so I said, okay, sounds good. So... My sergeant got there. I said, hey, we got to go to the DA's office first. Okay, so what's up? I said, well, we're going to start a libel. He said, no, no kidding. I said, yeah, I talked to the major, and he said, go for it. So we get down. We explain the case, what had happened to the um, ADA, and he says, sure. He says, Give me the, get back to me this afternoon after you've inventoried it with the information on the vehicle, VIN number, and what have you, and the owner's stuff. And the ADA is the assistant district assistant attorney? Assistant district attorney, yeah. yeah. He's the one that would file the libel paperwork. Gotcha. So great. And meanwhile, it's now getting to be 10 o'clock in the morning, and we haven't heard from the guys we took the vehicle from. They haven't called to say, where's our truck, or what's happened, what happens now, or anything. So that, that was kind of puzzling. So we went. The inventory of the vehicle was straightforward because the only thing we intended on keeping was the, the truck, the vehicle. So we took all the personal Laser. property, stuff that didn't go with the, with the rig, and bagged it and tagged it for return. And there was nothing else that we found incriminating. So we didn't have much there, but we had their possessions. So I said to the sergeant, well, I guess we'll go to camp and see if anyone's around so we can give them their stuff. Uh, this really puzzles me. i got a brand-new vehicle here, and nobody cares that I've got it. So we drive all the way over to where the camp is. We just turn onto the camp road, and here comes this 1973 Ford pickup so rusted out that the fenders are flapping. It's barely making its way down the road. And the guy driving it is the guy I talked to out of the deer camp the <laughs> night before. So I wind down my window. I say, hey, how's you doing? How's it going? And he looks like, you know, somebody just kicked his puppy. And he says, well, we were just headed for a payphone to see if we could call you. And he's looking, he keeps looking behind me. I said, what you looking for? He goes, well, I was looking for my truck. I said, oh, no, no, no. I said, that's, uh, that's not coming today. And I said, um, do you know what a civil libel is? No, he says, I don't. I said, well, it's where we go through a court proceeding that we keep it, and you never get it back. I said, but let's go back to camp, and we'll talk about it. I said, I have your stuff I need to return. You guys want to go back to camp? Yeah. Well, what had happened is they had gone to the neighbors and told them their sad story of woe, and he wasn't about to give them his good rig, but he says, well, you can take my Ford. <laughs> they didn't they have any way to get out of camp, yeah, huh? we went from the and they had no phone to call. Yeah. <laughs> went from the shiny, state-of-the-art, brand spanking new K5 to the, <laughs> to the clumpity-clumpity down the road in the old... Rusted out forward. So we go back to camp. We go inside, and there's six guys standing around. And you can't get anything accomplished. I'd say something, and somebody would say something. Somebody have a problem with that. So finally I said, hey, look, if you're not involved in this situation, step outside. So everybody left except for the guy that wanted his stuff out of the vehicle and the guy that answered the door, and I did all the talking to and admitted to owning the vehicle. So there's my two people. I just mm -hmm. the only thing I don't know now is which one was driving, and we can guess it was the guy that owned it, but it's I only imagine. a guess. So they're still trying, you know, hedging their bets, and you know what's going to happen. I said, look, guys, last night probably somebody had gone to jail, but today all I want all I want to know is the truth because I know ninety percent of what happened anyway. The guy goes, yeah, all right, whatever. I said, seriously, you don't think I know what happened? I said, I know everything that happened except for which one of you two was driving. He says, really? And how would you know that? I said, well, I'm going to tell you something right now. And if it doesn't mean anything to you, we can keep arguing. 
I said, but if what I'm about to say means anything to you, I said, I want you to sit down, write out your statements, and let's get let's stop fooling around. He said, all right, what do you got? And I said, you know the deer you ran over last night? He's like, yeah. Uh, the deer that got run over last night? He says, yeah. I said, it was just like the deer down to L.L. Beans. His color just drained out of his face, and he goes, all right, what do you, what do you need to know? I said, <laughs> I need to know which one of you guys was driving, and I need to know, you know. Because that's one what, thing you didn't say last night. Right. <laughs> what, what were you up to? I said, I'm, I'm, I pretty much figured out it wasn't intentional, but, you know, confirm for me what you were up to. So it turns out the big guy that owned it, he was the driver, mm-hmm. and he reaffirmed the exact same story from the night before. Yeah, we've been hunting all week. And we went to town to take take a shower at the local hotel we had a couple beers on the ride back we pulled in there we saw that mm. deer he says and we just couldn't resist the opportunity to chase it out of the field we thought it was mocking us because it was in a field down the road from camp and he said <laughs> i didn't realize what it was and he says and i was going so fast when i slammed the brakes on i couldn't steer and i hit it I said, hey was that so hard i said i know that it wasn't intentional i said it's still a problem but i got something to work with now you know, penalties aren't going to be as steep. I got no intention of keeping the vehicle now that I, you know, now that I got everything going on here. I'll work with you. So the long story short, um, they were charged with criminal mischief and they made restitution. They gave enough restitution that the deer that we had was able to be repaired by a taxidermist, and we bought a new, another one with the money that they. Perfect. So the guy that actually had the decoy um, got the new one. I hope. Yes, he got the new one, plus he was happy with the outcome rather than being angry with me. Now, the punchline. The game warden that came up to work that night had the Freeport District, which is the headquarters for L.L. Beans. And L.L. Beans was going through a major remodel. And they didn't know what to do with the deer that was (laughs) the eight-point buck that was in the doorway. So they donated it to him. As a decoy. To be used for our wildlife wildlife simulator program. And it had only been in his possession for a week or so before it got run over by these guys that had just seen it at L.L. Beans. It was just so, like the deer at L.L. It, Beans. It was exactly like the deer at L.L. Beans because it was. And <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Uh, you can't, Norm. That's, that, that's a great <clears throat> it's, story. It's the, like I said, it's still the ADA's favorite fish and wildlife story because uh, no one sees that twist coming until oh, the end of the story. No, no, no. I never saw it coming either. That's just outstanding. That's just funny. So, <laughs> and, and you got to play that role as a supervisor too. You keep talking about your sergeant yes. riding with you. Um, so you I rolled had, into that for a little bit. Yeah, I had 13 years on, and I took the sergeant's test, and I was promoted to sergeant. At the time, I was uh, running the firearms instruction team for the main wooden service. Mm. I worked at the uh, police academy teaching cadets both from law, you know, all branches of law enforcement, including warden service. And I did so as a field operator and kind of, it would have been a little beneficial to that position for me to have some authority. Plus I was ready to move up and I felt anyways, and, and supervise my peers. And it was time for change with 13 years on. I thought I'd, you know, I knew enough about what I was doing to help other people do what they needed to do. Yeah. So I was selected and I was given a, um, the furthest South position as a sergeant in the state, and it was great. And I always... It was active. Yes. Very, very busy, like I talked about earlier. And like I always tell people, to, so they can get a better understanding, it was like being a player coach. I didn't have an assigned area 
that I had to answer the public's complaints. I had an assigned group of guys to oversee. Mm -hmm. So I would keep track of them without micromanaging them. I would keep track with them on a day-to-day basis, figure out what they were up to. Uh, If it sounded like they were up to something really good and I wanted to be there, I could be there. If it sounded like I needed to be there, I could be there. Or if they wanted me to be there, I could be there. So I got to work with different people every day and I always got to work doing the good stuff and not much of the mundane stuff because... The supervisor goes where the action is. Absolutely. So that was a great job. That was great. Well, that lasted not quite a year, and our state government went through a transition, and our supervisory um, positions were cut way back. And I was actually laid off at the time I went back into the field. And I retained rights to be promoted again at at a later date. Well, that later date came, and I was promoted, but the game changed. I was no longer a player coach. I was an half administrator, half coach, but no player anymore. Mm. And I spent time at a desk and a computer, which is not really my forte. Uh, I was involved in personnel investigations, which was the most distasteful thing I did other than fatality-related things Mm -hmm. in the warden service was to actually investigate my own peers for wrongdoing and and deal with the folks that were were upset. Um, I never really had any real bad ones, but just was not a great place to be the guys don't have as much faith in you when you're the one that's investigating their their shortcomings yeah. it would be it would probably would have been a better situation if you had been investigating people that work for somebody else and they investigated the people that work for you so you could mm-hmm. retain that t- relationship of trust right but it didn't work out that way there was some growing pains going on in warden service today they actually have an internal affairs investigator he has nobody directly assigned to him he has you so know, everybody can there's no trust. There's no day-to-day <laughs> trust issue there. He's the yeah. guy that does the thing. And because he does everybody's, everybody's has done the same. Mm-hmm. Much, much better way than the situation. So that kind of wore on me. I had some things going on in my personal life, like a divorce mm-hmm. coming up. And um, I just said, you know, I'm not doing anyone any good, including myself. I'm not I'm not doing a great job for the guys that work for me or for the people of the state of Maine. I got I to gotta stop doing this go back to doing something that I thought I did fairly well, which is uh, just an everyday game one that looks out for me. Yeah. Um, so I did that. At the same time, I gave up um, supervising the instruction team for firearms. That was a very demanding. It took me away from home. It took a lot of energy. And I, I did that in addition to all my other stuff that I had to do. So I gave, I gave that up. I took a, a lower position than that. I still helped out somewhat, but I didn't leave the team anymore. Right. But you got a partner out of that. Yeah, and about that time, I decided that um, I needed something to be a little bit different so it wasn't the same old thing and make myself a little bit happy and all that was going on. So I applied to the K-9 team. And that was huge. Yeah. Yeah. So. That was about one of the best moves I ever made. Yeah, I think so too. And, uh, you know, it's funny when people say that their animals look like them. I, I always, when I saw, met Clyde, I was like, how'd they find a dog that looked like Norm? Yeah, the dog was, the dog was actually given to me. Um, uh, I was one of the people that come on the canine team at the time that didn't already have a dog lined up. A uh, guy that I had a lot of faith in that was one of my, my canine trainers. He probably, at, at one time, was probably one of the best uh, cadaver canine handlers in the entire United States. He worked all over the United States. Mm. Um, went to Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. So I had asked him his advice on a dog, and he, he told me that, you know, he felt that I couldn't do any better than to get a female lab. So that's what I wanted for a dog. 
I showed up at training one day, and the actual team leader who raised dogs and had dogs had this little <laughs> male puppy that he wanted to donate to the state and wanted someone to, I don't know what he saw in the dog. He saw something in the dog, and he wanted someone to have it as a canine. He knew I needed a, I needed a dog, so he was kind of thinking, you know, I got to make this thing work. So basically, put a puppy in somebody's lap and see if they'll give it up later. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. work. So. Yeah. Yeah, it was still is. I mean, still happen. Yeah, that's it's tough. Certainly a friend, a partner. Yep. Yeah. Nope. And uh, yeah, I almost brought him today, but yeah, he's getting older and yeah. getting in and out of the truck's not as easy. Yeah. No, I totally get it. So parts of the family. You know, most for the most part, a lot of a lot of rural police officers work alone, but there's a lot of police officers that work with partners, two two person cars. Game wardens, very least, there's no such thing as a two-person car. You know? Right. You know, once in a while you work with a adjoining guy or you work with somebody, but most of the time you're by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 80% of the time yeah. for, for most guys, unless you're somebody that really requires company, <laughs> it's 80% of the time. Maybe, I will say I encourage uh, my guys to work together. Yeah. Just, no, no. It, it's always it's always safer for absolutely. one thing. And it's always. And, and try to get a local PD guy or a trooper to find out where you are if you ever right, have to call them in. Right. I'm like, and to have find you. And to have um, nothing against everyday police officers, law no, enforcement officers. Not at all. But. They don't think the way we do. So mm-hmm. when they do show up to help you, they don't know they don't catch pick up the same things. You kind of pretty much have to direct what you need for help. Yeah. If you work with somebody enough, they they catch on. But it's yeah. not like having another game wooden with you. Yeah. But no doubt. It just doesn't work out. There's too few of us in the first place, so yeah. it's not that often that you're you're running with a partner. So yeah. when you have the dog, and at the time because things going on in my personal life, it's just me and the dog. Yeah. And if, <laughs> <laughs> whether it was work or whether it was work or not work, it was everything. Yeah. So, tw- huh. primarily, twenty three hours out of a twenty four hour day, I could put my arm on a dog. That the dog yeah. was never long farther away from me than the length of my arm. Mm. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal: develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com And you were, you're, you're a heck of a team. For seven you years, know. yep. You know, you had some, you know, one of your best finds, I'm assuming, was a kid? Um... I found a suicidal kid one time. I found a uh, older lady that had a medical emergency. That, unfortunately for me, because it wasn't my favorite thing, my dog had an affinity for cadavers. So, yeah, I, I, I remember all those. <clears throat> stories, I found yeah. um, many people that were no longer with us, mm-hmm. and I also found victim fairly high profile. Yeah, people don't realize that you know wardens get involved in that stuff, but and it you know across the country, I I don't know how it works because my my familiarity is limited to Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire when it comes yeah, to game wardens. And, and, and we do and become involved in, in Maine. Profile. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands of acres that don't ever see a blue cruiser. Right. They see <laughs> or, a green one. Though. Yeah, or, or blue uniforms, yeah. but they see green uniforms. So mm-hmm. Maine game wardens will get involved in anything that they have to. Right. They have the authority to handle anything that anyone else has. Um, 
and if it's if it's not something something that we're good at, we'll hold the scene until you can get there. And right. a lot of places where things happen in the remote country, it's it's a project to get everyday yeah. law enforcement there. So yeah, and didn't you, you were involved with the murder case, weren't you? Where I've been involved in several. Yeah, several. I've been involved in one of the more graphic, large, borderline serial killers that we've. We had in the state during my career, and then the other high profile, high profile because the person was from from away, and yeah, it got yeah. a lot of attention all over the east. Yeah, and uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about search and rescue because me and you have done some search yes. and rescues and together, actually together, right? And because uh, we border each other on the New Hampshire main line, and right. uh, you know, uh, we're going to laugh about this one because I'll talk about the time I got lost. Trying You're to throw find yourself it. under the bus before yeah, I bring it up. exactly because I can see you were going to do it for me. Well, so. <laughs> it probably would be fair to say that unless you've worked along a border, and it's not unique to Maine, New Hampshire, it could be Maine, Canada, or any states. Unless you've actually had a border district, you probably don't realize that in order to patrol places in Maine, I had to go to New Hampshire first and then and come I had back to go into to Maine. Maine first. And in order for these. you to patrol certain places in New Hampshire, you would have to come into Maine and then go back into New Hampshire and find them. Yeah. And that's not really clear to people who have never patrolled that way. And not at all. It's not clear to some of some of the um, administration when they want to know why you were seen in another state mm-hmm. with your vehicle and while on duty and then you have to explain well i can't get to this particular place unless i go and sometimes like i have to come all the way over here into gorham and in berlin to get to certain places absolutely there's no other way to do it and i mean i'm quite a ways into new hampshire by the time i get here mm-hmm. and it's not like i'm just within sight of the sign mm-hmm. yeah so that that one happened to you had a plane up looking and i yeah we had some he wandered over too didn't he <laughs> yeah that was um i actually was a supervisor then so i had a little more pull than i than I normally would have. I'd have done the same thing whether I was a supervisor or not. But yeah, um, I think everybody felt more comfortable because I was taking the heat for, on that one. But uh, yeah, we had some missing, some overdue hikers. Uh, it was winter time. We got some snow that was unexpected, and so these people were overdue. And we put a plane up and found them and got some ground help to them, and they were perfectly fine. The only mat- only problem there was they were slowed down by when the assistant of the game wasn't a snowmobile just made their day that much better but they would have been fine without us mm-hmm. well as luck would have it at that point while the plane was still up we had another guy stumble out of the forest and the only phone he could find was after he wandered into maine <laughs> and reported that uh two of his companions were still stranded and one was in pretty bad shape mentally and they were very worried about him and he left a guy to keep an eye on him and he being the more capable of the three had gone for help so we started that and soon realized that it wasn't in Maine, it was in New Hampshire. And the only reason we got the call was because that's where... And the same thing happens on your side. We'll have oh. people come out and they'll be they'll call the police department here in Gorham, New Hampshire. When you get everything figured out, they're in Maine on the Appalachian Trail, but the only phone right. signal is at Mount Washington, which gives yeah. them Gorham PD. Yeah. So anyways, I had the plane divert from where we were and we came over and I continued to have our ground units go because i had been in contact with new hampshire fishing game and found out you guys were and we were coming you were all off on snowmobile up towards pittsburgh though yeah and they told me they're yeah they're about an hour from their trucks and then i thought well from pittsburgh down there it's another hour so mm-hmm. they're two hours out this sounds kind of desperate where one guy's not doing good and it was not the best of conditions not was not summertime it was dead of winter i don't remember but you guys were working snow sleds yeah, so it, was it was the dead of winter that was january a, february yeah, it had to be certainly yeah so we came over with a plane. Long story short, we located the people, and we did 
that was funny. Um, one of the few times I ever thought I was going to get sick in the airplane was that particular time. So it was spinning around <laughs> that Carter Basin up there, and there was land beside the plane except for this one end of the horseshoe where we could fly out of the basin. So we were kind of like flying around in a big circle. Yeah, in a bowl. Yeah. And, uh, and with, banked with, pretty good, I'm assuming. Banked with a bright light shining off the snow and just corkscrewing around. And finally, they could be I, sick talking about yeah, it. Yeah, finally I told the pilot, I said, I got to get on the ground. And he said, yeah, well, that's probably a good idea. We're getting low on fuel anyway. So we started to leave, and we'd had, already had them located, and we were trying to guide the ground units in. They weren't, they, it was time-consuming, and they weren't getting closer. So we started to fly away, and one of the ground units called and said, hey, I'm at, a, I'm at a branch in the stream here. I don't know which way to go. Can you come back and tell me? So we flew back to tell him. So he, he chained. So it's kind of interesting because I was in the plane. I helped locate the people. The airport wasn't that far away. As soon as we touched down, I jumped in my truck. I got to the scene. They still didn't have the people out. They were just getting to them. So I unloaded my snowmobile. And, went and, in and, and I was, still wasn't there. Right. <laughs> and I went in and participated in the rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, after being in the plane earlier, it's not very often that you fly in the plane and locate problems on the ground and go fix them yourself. No, that's, that's um, very unusual. It was just worked out that I was able to do that. And as luck would have it, I was probably the one most familiar with that countryside even though it was new hampshire I, I, you were more every, familiar than i was <laughs> out of everybody that was was there anyways long story short everybody got rescued and just as we were getting them all out to where the, all the media was and all the ambulances all along came the calvary in the form of new hampshire yeah yep me and, and a trainee <laughs> and uh, and uh, the uh, oh, le- legendary mike moody yeah oh that's right and Mike came down too yeah we all those of us who know mike know how thrilled he must have been when i went to him and said hey i'm all done with my part you go talk to the press yeah exactly <laughs> and we left <clears throat> main main loaded their stuff and left and you guys were there with the filling out the paperwork and talking to the press so yeah those are the good ones when i when you get all done you can walk away you can just walk away no paperwork involved no interviews involved and hand it all over to some poor innocent yeah, bystander I'll, I'll never forget that day as we just unloaded and started driving up after i couldn't find wild river because like you said, I had to drive into Maine, and I was unfamiliar with that area. Yep. Drive into Maine to come back to New Hampshire and didn't really know where I was going. But Into Maine and then into the National Forest, which is another entity. And, right. Yeah. And then, you know, ended up finding you guys, but you guys were pretty much all done with the rescue. So Yeah. No, uh, that was a good one. Nobody was really – the guy was just panicked because, of the, you know, they had to spend a night in the woods. They didn't plan on spending right. a bit off more than they could chew. And, but – but it was a very involved rescue. Yep. And you pulled off most of it. So, yeah, we, and we always seem to have involved rescues. The Mahusik Range that borders us. I mean, it seems like right. every time we're we're trying to split hair as to which side it is, and you're just like, uh, well, let's, we're coming. So, and I really loved it when you brought your helicopters. Now, I, I started an effort <laughs> to um, actually end the Appalachian Trail on top of Mount Washington and forget the whole Golden to Katahdin thing. But uh, it never caught on. It uh, never caught <laughs> It was caught only on. popular with me and a few other game woods from Maine. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think I could have jumped on that one, too. So. Um, unfortunately, not to disparage the Appalachian Trail or the people that hike it, um, when they leave Georgia in the spring, like March, to hike to Mount Katahdin in Maine, New Hampshire White Mountains are the first straw that breaks the camel's back. Yes. And then the Mahusiks are the second and then it just continues to get worse until you get to Katahdin. Um, the little problems that they were having down south become bigger problems. And if you don't thin them out at Mount Washington here and they make it a little further, sometimes they're already broken and battered before they get to us. And there are many people that make it as far as the White Mountains in New Hampshire that don't make it a lot further. 
Absolutely. That's when the challenges start. You collect your share on this side, and we get the ones that make it through that's probably probably should have quit. Exactly. If you look up in some of the Appalachian Trail Guides, you'll find out that what's arguably or considered by some the most difficult mile of the Appalachian Trail, all 2,000-some-odd miles of it, is uh, in the Mahusik Notch, which is a one-mile section of train that I was responsible for and went into on numerous occasions to pull people out. And I would agree because it's up and down and up it's, and yeah, down. Yeah, you go through a channel between two mountains. You can almost put a hand on each mountain as you're going through there, and it's right. nothing but boulders in the bottom. It's, Snow stays in the cracks between the rocks year-round. Yeah. So it's always a temperature dif- differential there. It's 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 unique ground. It, it is you know? definitely the most challenging, in my opinion, the part of the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, it's so. not easy to carry people out of stuff like that. Uh, uh, no. No, it's not easy to fly helicopters in there to rescue them either, which everybody thinks, you know, thanks to television and a right. few successful helicopter rescues that, hey, this is gravy. We'll just bring a helicopter. And many times yeah, you, you have to do the, and I did it as a supervisor and I did it because I had mountain. You have to balance the um, risk versus reward when you have a non-life-threatening injury. That means a lot of work for everybody, but it's not life-threatening. Do you want to bring a couple million dollars worth of helicopter and five or six innocent lives into a bad situation to take care of someone's non-life-threatening mistake? Yeah. And I have, much to the dismay of the people that ended up doing the physical labor, have sent helicopters away or refused to call them when... You save them for when you need them, and then they're more anxious right. to come. because those carryouts are very labor-intensive. Carryouts are horrible. Your biggest concern when you're doing those on, night, on non-life-threatening injuries, your biggest concern is not trying not to injure a rescuer at that point. Absolutely. Because a couple of things. Now you've got a second victim to get rid of. You've got less help, and mm-hmm. you know, and you got less help for tomorrow because whatever injures your helper, he's not going to be around to help for a while. Yeah. So you got a lot of considerations when you when you do those carryouts, and it's confusing. And this came up in in Maine on a few times, not mostly with our people, but we have to rely on a lot of volunteer labor mm-hmm. because there isn't as do we. There isn't you know there isn't a ton of game wardens to show up and make these carryouts. Mm-hmm. Sad fact of it is, the only ones that are legally responsible and required to be there are game wardens. Everybody else that comes is volunteers, so you have to treat them with kid gloves. Yeah. But what happens with a lot of um, volunteer groups, if they're not mountain search and rescue groups, they don't realize the actual numbers of people that it takes to pull off. Yeah. You like to have three teams available to run a litter. Mm-hmm. If you can't use a wheel on the litter, and depending on the size of your victim, that's eight people on the litter. Yep. That's 24 bodies right there, carrying, just carrying the litter. You usually have somebody that doesn't carry that attends to the victim <laughs> because they get, they're the you know, most senior uh, medical person is, yep. is that you don't want them carrying and being distracted. And then you got those that tire out too quickly that don't carry anymore. And then you have anymore. people that their heart's in the right place, but that's the only part of the body that is. That's right. <laughs> and my, my target number was 30. Yeah, exactly. You know? And that isn't under, always understood back at the base when you're asking for help. Yeah. So what the heck? They're, that's a lot know, of people. They're only in there. You know, why am I supposed to get these people? Yeah. And, and yeah, one I, of the rescues we had off the Maho 6, I think it was two New Hampshire guys, me running the show, and the rest were main game wardens. Yes. So, and, yeah, that, that's a pretty sad day when I can only, you know, get one guy to come out and the yep. rest are, are main game wardens that come yep. out for that carry out. So, and and we d- main search and rescue team, and I did get a few other volunteers. Yeah, we did so. one right on the border one day that we didn't know if it was going to be yours or ours till we got there mm-hmm. because of how it was called in. 
And so we did it together with a flip of a coin of when we hit the GPS unit, when we get the top, who's yeah. stuck? And it happened to be you guys. Yeah. So, but, <laughs> but you were there not, anyways. But it's not like we, we took our ball and went home. We, we participated just like it, you know. Yeah. So it's always good to have that relationship and be able to work Absolutely. with another agency. Especially when you did have helicopters because we used those several times. Yep. And uh, I certainly got the picture of me, you, and the helicopter in the background the first time we did it because I thought that was pretty slick, yeah. you know. So that was uh, – now, helicopter helicopter is a great tool, but like any any tool, especially something that technical, and the human cost and the actual physical cost of operating it, you use them judiciously. Yeah, no you, doubt. Uh, you're asking those people to um, risk their lives sometimes outside of their their core mission, what they're mm-hmm. expected to do. So you don't do that lightly. No, um, I would agree. So, but, but the you talk six to, was a great place you talk to do to it any because of, these, of difficulties. Yeah, you talk to any of these pilots, though. They're like all of us. They're just dying to come try and it. do it anyway. They love it. But if you ask them, they're going to come. That's what I found out. So mm-hmm. it's so, lots of times if, if it doesn't look like it's going to be a good idea, don't ask them because yeah. then they won't come. And, and if it's non-life-threatening, you're just asking so you can get out of some nasty work. Mm-hmm. You know, you, part of it's you don't want anyone else to get hurt, but part of it is you just want it to end now. Yeah. And... Uh, but and as you know, these things happen back to back to back sometimes in this White Mountains and the Mahusics. Yeah. Where you just get home from one and you get called to another. And sometimes it's like a bad joke. No, you can't be serious. We just left there. We just did that. <laughs> yeah, well go back. <clears throat> yeah, and then the third time comes and Oh yeah. You know, yeah. I was always trying to spare my people, you know. Our major, Chris Cloutier, was one of my working partners before he was promoted up through the ranks and he's a well renowned practical joker. And we had been up and done a couple in some really nasty weather. We had done two in one day. And I had just gotten home and was getting some sleep when he called back and told me we had a broken leg in a completely another spot, but back in the same area. And I really thought he was kidding. And it took a long time for him to convince me that he wasn't because it was just, it can't be. No. We, we just got done doing this. It can't be. But, yeah, it could be, and it was. That was a helicopter rescue after we spent the night on top of the mountain. Um, yeah. I used to hate that phone call, too, you know, when the phone's ringing and you know it's the boss, and you're like, oh, where well, are that's we going the, now? That's the best thing about being retired is when you go to bed at night, the phone rarely rings. It's, I, it's I still agree. It's still no less because now when the phone rings in the middle of the night, I think something's happened to somebody in my family. Yeah. So, no. And anybody that knows you knows not to call at night because they know the trauma you went through for your whole career with that phone ringing at night. Right. But there was a time, like in the wintertime, I, I was telling my girlfriend this, this winter, we lived off-grid up north, and on cold nights, I would tell her, I said, my first thought on any night like this, my first thought when the phone would ring was, I wonder who's dead tonight. Yeah. Because that's, and it doesn't, not that it happens every night, it just happens enough. So when the phone when rings, the phone rings, that's where your mind goes immediately. You've already, you've already got equipment loaded and people on the way before you've even said hello. Yeah. You, you've already half your rescue planned before you, before <laughs> you find out that someone's just calling to ask a stupid question. But yeah. because of the way our minds work, you know, no you doubt. just know the types of weather, types of the times of year, and the type of activity that's going on. What's likely, to, or not so much likely, but what could happen. And right, you try to be prepared for those, the bad things, so you're not taken off guard. And it's kind of, it's kind of nice in the end when you've already got half your gear on, and you have, and you find out you don't have to go anywhere. 
No, no doubt. It's a big that relief. Got wor- that got worse when I was a supervisor, actually, because then you started getting those nighttime calls for all over the state. For everything. And I can remember you couldn't, you wasn't, we weren't physically able to go to every scene, but you're still for policy and for other reasons, we're required to be notified of all the moves that were being made so that you could okay this and okay that. And I can remember sitting in my living room in the middle of the night having three or four of these things going on in different parts of the state, trying to keep, you know, you're half awake. So when the phone calls, you're talking to somebody, you're trying to remember, is this the snowmobile accident? Yeah, or is-, is this the missing person? Or what are we doing again, guys? Yeah. And thank God you got, you got good guys that, you know, don't necessarily need you to be there, but, you know, they want to make sure their decisions are the right ones, so they get run them by you for an okay. And that, uh, you know, so that that was that still goes on. We're back to a much better structure in the state of Maine, but still, it's as a supervisor, some nights can be overwhelming as to how many things you're trying to deal with different places, places you've never been. Yeah, and you're trying to make critical decisions or help guys make critical decisions, and you don't even know who or what they're dealing with because right. you've never been there. You don't know the capabilities of their. I mean, around here, if you're a smart game warden, around here, you um, actually know the favorite food of your local search and rescue folks because that's what you try to get for them. And when a, they come out, it's as, about anything. Yeah, Hot as, coffee, a, as, a, as a payoff for helping you. you, you know where they live, so you can go find them if they don't answer their phone. Uh, absolutely. Um, you probably have their personal cell phone numbers mm-hmm. for the real dedicated ones, and uh, yeah. they're worth their weight in gold. And they're the true heroes because they don't have to be there. Oh, no doubt. They choose to be there. No doubt. Um, yeah. No, I plan on doing a podcast with some of my search and rescue people that are local heroes. So. They have an ability because it's what they want to do to become experts in things that you as a game warden don't have the time to be an expert in. Right. Climbing, climbing with ropes. Um, yep. The medical end of it. I mean, that's a lot to take on. There's so many things that a game warden does. You can't be an expert at Everything. all of them. And you're not going to be an expert, but just – in a few things, mm. and that's a, that's another great thing because game wardens are a diverse group of people, and usually you know who to call. Because <laughs> what they, situation? Yeah, because yeah. they do this, or they know about this, or they know about that. For right. me, being a firearms instructor, when I was doing that, if there were gun type questions, Absolutely. different police agencies or whatever, I became a local expert for some, yep. and a source source of information. And then later on with the canine, of course, you're a specialty team all on your own with the canine. Mm-hmm. So then no doubt. you get calls to actually go or what do you think? Do you think you could help? And because anybody, it's like the helicopter thing. Anybody with a dog's going to say, yeah, I'll give it a try. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Only yeah. Thing, worst thing you can do is not work. Exactly. So, uh, And now you're running a campground in northern Maine, right? Yep. Yeah. And what's that? Uh, Sabumic Wilderness Campground. Sabumic Wilderness Campground. It's on the very north end of Moosehead Lake. We're off grid by about 30 miles. And we're we're open three seasons. We we live there all four seasons. We come out a little bit. We're out right now because of mud season. Yeah, that's why I could and, was able to grab you. Thank right, goodness. and we're kind of wondering how we're going to be able to get back in here because yesterday was supposed to be our opening day, but our customers can't get to us, so it's <laughs> no sense to be there and be open. <laughs> but might we do. Be a week or two, but so. we do have customers next week that we assume are going to be able to make it in. So we've got to get right. back and get ready for them. Yeah, but, yeah, well, it's it's fun. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, people hear this podcast, maybe come visit you yeah, up that'd there be great. and uh, yeah. hear some more stories from Norm Lewis, yeah, uh, main game warden. It's so. a beautiful place to be after, you know, after all the things 
that I had to worry about before. It's kind of nice if I worry about clogged toilets and you know light <laughs> light switches that don't work and you know it's definitely clean, a different cl- way cleaning up fire pits and basically if I screw up nobody dies so yeah. it's it's. But, but when fall comes around, you end up in a cruiser, don't you? I have um, every fall so far. I have actually participated somehow doing something, and only because I'm Clyde's driver, <laughs> not, because, <laughs> not because anybody needs me. <laughs> that's how they basically referred to me the last seven years of my career was Clyde's driver. And I yeah. always said if I could teach Clyde to drive the truck and run the computer, I wouldn't have to leave home. <laughs> that's great. That's great. So. No, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you taking the time and no, talking with me. And yeah, no, it's 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 great to to reminisce about these things and share them. I think too. Yes. So people get a feeling of what uh, Game Warden's job is and get to hear those stories and our experiences. So. That's a great great way to make a living, though. Feel like the outdoors. No doubt. So. We gotta we gotta mention before we leave. Okay. You know what I'm gonna talk about next Friday. Next Friday. My son gets sworn in in New Hampshire. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I don't have that on my calendar yet. <laughs> I have it on mine. Yes. I'll be back out of the woods for one it, more day it, in New Hampshire a, for a, one a more second day. second generation warden. That, that's yeah, awesome. It, yeah. And, and I, in New Hampshire, which is kind of neat. That it's very neat. And I remember when you guys came turkey hunting to my house. Yeah, he was brought, just a little kid then. Yeah, he was just a little kid. Yep. And Roland, you, you, you wanted to plug into my electricity. I'm like, what, whatever, Norm. You can stay <laughs> in my house, but you, you plugged your trailer in. Yeah, no, he's, he's always liked the outdoors. And yeah. He went to college to have a, some type of a career in the outdoors. And, and, and he worked at the Mount Washington. He worked at the Mount Washington. He's uh, Great Glen. And as a matter of fact, I stopped in there the other day, and they had high, high. They were sorry to see him. Yeah, they, they miss him. It just yeah. wasn't the right situation where it was seasonal work, and he's got yeah. adult responsibilities he now. He gained some so. of those experiences that are going to be very valuable right. to us. Right. He actually, with everything he's done, it's not the typical route that someone goes to become a game warden. Yeah. But it's going to be, there's going to be some skills that he picked up that – the typical person doesn't pick up when you take a con law degree. That's right. Um, he spent a lot of time outdoors, mm. and he spent a lot of time taking care of other people Yeah, in the outdoors. Absolutely, so. and that's going to come in handy. I hope that should help. Yep. Ends up in this country because we, we do a lot of that helping yes, other people he, like that. If he, if he could have his dreams come true, he'll be somewhere where he can see Mount Washington. Yeah. So Ben Lewis, this, this Friday, is going to get sworn yep. in as a New Hampshire conservation officer. Yeah, no, that's. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't. Wasn't thinking about no, that. That's all right. I was thinking I got you out of the woods and I was able to do a no, podcast just, with you. But I just no. had to mention it because that, that's a lot of pride there. I yes. mean, and we don't see a lot of second gen. I won't have a second generation. My son wants nothing to do with it. No, Maine, <laughs> Maine actually um, is is kind of interesting that way. There's some second generation guys. There's some guys that skipped the generation, so they'd be the third. We've had mm-hmm. uh, two different husband and wife teams. Um, yeah, we've got a one one set of brothers, two sets of brothers now. Mm. Neat. So yeah, it's kind yeah. of a family affair off and on here. We've yeah, had they've had brothers, fathers, and sons and stuff in the past as well. Yeah, no, father daughter. So that was kind of different. And yeah. my mentor, Sergeant Bryant, was his father was a game warden yeah. too. So he's second generation. Well, one thing about it, when a kid comes and that has been raised. By a game warden says he wants to be a game warden. He knows what it's all about. Yeah, you don't have to waste your time saying you sure you know what you're getting into. Yeah, because no they've been sometimes right in the past. You see when it happened. Uh-uh. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> that you know people don't well, people don't understand when you're a game warden. It's pretty much 
24-7. It doesn't really matter what the schedule says. Yeah. You're yeah, pretty. If you got your you know, kids, um, sometimes some, they got to go in the yeah, back. Yeah, you got to <laughs> you, you gotta use your head about what you want to drag your family into. But if there's no, you know, no danger involved, but somebody needs assistance, then you're going to be right in the middle of it, whether you're getting paid or not. And mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. And your family, for the most part, realizes it. Yep. So. No doubt. No doubt. So he knows what he's getting into. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're yeah. pretty happy that he's going to be yeah. uh, a New Hampshire uh, should do good. game warden. So, um, yeah, I guess I'll have to do a podcast with him now. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Norm. Yep. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.